0: Hello and welcome to another COVID 19 law and policy briefing produced by Public Health Law Watch, a George Consortium initiative housed at Northeastern University School of Law. Thank you to our co sponsors, the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple University, the Network for Public Health Law, and Change Lab Solutions. We're here to provide expert legal analysis during the COVID 19 pandemic and hopefully to answer some of your questions. For more information on the legal response to COVID, please check out our reports, Assessing Legal Responses to COVID-19 and the COVID-19 Policy Playbook 2 at www.covid19policyplaybook.org. Please use the Twitter hashtag, hashtag COVID Law Briefing, one word, for any questions or comments in response to this briefing. I'm very pleased uh, to, for, to to welcome my guests, uh, Christopher Robertson, Professor of Law at Boston University Law School, and one of the, you know. Consistently innovative thinkers in our field. And Gene Matthews, who teaches at the Gilling School of Public Health at uh, the University of North Carolina, is the director of the Southeastern region of the Network for Public Health Law and served for, I think it was 87 years um, as uh, chief counsel at CDC during some of its prior challenging times, including the response to HIV. I'm Scott Burris, your host, professor of law, and director of the Center for Public Health Law Research. At Temple University Beasley School of Law, today we're going we're going to talk about whether or not our key public health agencies might be refashioned uh, profitably as independent or quasi-independent government bodies. Um, Chris and his uh, co-author have a piece in in New England Journal of Medicine about that, and have contributed a chapter to our uh, policy playbook too. I think the way to frame this question is 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 simple. We now have a prescription. Let's make these agencies independent the next question is what exactly is the diagnosis that that prescription is treating and i'm going to turn that question right over to chris and then gene chris why what went wrong that this is the fix for
1: well thank you scott it's uh great to be here and, and nice to be with you gene as well um so you know we talk about three fundamental problems that were um, revealed uh, by the pandemic i mean one was the the lack of stable competence to perform some of these key public health roles the second Second was a lack of public trust in their own institutions, knowing that they were getting sound scientific advice and reliable scientific decisions uh, across uh, the political divide. And, and thirdly, we we were I think we discovered again uh, the uh, the lack of federal power uh, that was in existence to do some very basic things like track data um, about um, COVID nineteen deaths nationwide, uh, leaving um, you know in other bodies like reporters to try to cobble together such statistics. So, you know, it's, it's competence, it's uh, trust, and it's also federal authority. But I think, you know, if we, if we want to laser in on the independence part of it, I think it really goes to that second one, which is the trust where we had uh, multiple examples of the white house and health and human services, uh, installing political, I'm going to use the word political cronies, uh, into, uh, the CDC, uh, and then manipulating, I'll use that word explicitly, uh, the outputs of the CDC, um, and we have a we had some remarkable reporting from last fall, uh, explaining how uh, uh, federal officials rewrote parts of CDC reports uh, and even manipulated the uh, mor- uh, morbidity and mortality weekly report, uh, which is has sort of been the gold standard uh, for public health information. And so that political manipulation uh, of what is otherwise sound, uh, scientifically driven processes is really worrisome. And let me just add one more. It's not just whether the manipulation actually happens. Now that it's proven that it can happen, now we never really know in the future when a CDC report comes out, was it the real scientific advice or was it um, uh, you know politically manipulated? So it's both about the political bias, but also our trust and reliance on what comes out of these sorts of agencies.
2: Gene, yeah, I, I would agree. I would agree with you, uh, Chris. And what there were there were two things we didn't see. Well, you could add a fourth with lack of leadership. Okay, uh, I was at CDC many years in the run-up even to Y2K, and we're all sort of tabletops done regarding you know scenarios for an emerging infection or an intentional release of a, a etiologic agent. And over the years, CDC and I was at the table for a lot of them. Did every type of tabletop and in real-world experiences with state and local people for every and every possible agent, every scenario, every sense of so timing, whatever. And not once did anybody it cross anybody's mind to inject into the scenarios of failure of leadership. And so that is what we dealt with here. And, and certainly you can pick on the Trump administration, and they 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 certainly earned their fair share in my opinion. But but um, it really occurred all the way through our federalist system of government at the national, at the state, at the local, this vast dis in how locals and globally, we saw pandemic polarization, pandemic populism break out in all sorts of countries. This this is more in Scots. So that's one piece. And then the other piece that I don't think anybody in public health ever saw coming was public health becoming politically weaponized by, by extremes on the left and the right. And we just got chewed up like, you know, Bambi wandering into the Battle of the Alien versus the predator, you know. Uh, we don't have the skill sets. I think I, I better stop there. Well, I just want, now that we're
0: making the list of problems, I guess I want to throw in uh, a couple more because I like your list. I think we're so far, you know, broadly on the same page. But particularly when we think of redoing the CDC as a less politically sensitive or politically influenceable body, um, I have to say, I think one of the big problems we had in the response at the state, federal, and local public health level was really poor political capacity. You know, in fact, Gene, I, I I would disagree with you just this far, which is that it's very hard to go back and find a pandemic where public health wasn't weaponized politically to some degree or another. It happened with HIV. It happened with pandemic uh, influenza. It happened with smallpox. You know, we had anti-vaxxers in 1905. Henning Jacobson was just the, their, their spokesman. So, you know, I think that what struck me most close to home, I think, about the response to COVID was that our public health leadership has behaved like a group of epidemiologists and doctors who never heard of social and behavioral science themselves as above politics. And the mask imbroglio is only the latest example of that. And um, there's lots of thinking about what the right advice is. And there doesn't seem to be much consideration of how you actually get governments to adopt that advice and people to follow that advice. So when I think of the, the you know, trying to restore CDC's functioning, I kind of feel like, well, actually, I'd like some good politicians in there. They need to be hearing some people who have thought through the policy. Well, you
1: know, if I could add in, I, I I think you said two related but distinct things there is, is is the importance of social science and behavioral science and thinking about it, you know, managing an epidemic is as much about managing behavior uh, as it is about, um, um, you know, managing whether a new uh, therapeutic is approved or not. Um, and so whether it's masks or uptake of the vaccine, I would like to see a lot more behavioral science and focus groups and survey experiments and things like that as primary inputs and primary outputs. Uh, of the public health process, um, and to the extent that that's you know, that, I think that would be another great topic for us to spend an hour on. Is how well, we I'll just say, see my ahead.
0: commentary with Evan Anderson and Alice Wagoner in
2: the New England Journal this week because we, we make that point. <laughs> I'll be tweeting it. And, and if I could just say, Scott, you're absolutely right about the lack of political acumen recently. If you look back historically at the epidemics, at, at the 1918 flu, if you look at uh, in the 1930s, the, the venereal disease outbreak. There were political skill sets brought to bear within public health. Public health at the grassroots level had to be politically astute because they were quarantining people for smallpox or polio or whatever. And and Thomas Perrin, the Surgeon General, I- issued the the, the book uh, Shadow on the Land in the, in the late 30s about uh, sexually transmitted disease. That was a stone cold Political act to get to get to build political support, get resources, et cetera, in the depth of the depression. And public health took this strange turn around the 1960s and early 70s, probably having to do with the big federal funding streams replacing local and state funding streams for public health. And we went to this narrow public health of we don't want to get our integrity, we're science driven, we don't want our integrity besmirched by politicians and so forth. We're above. Of that issue.
0: Well, so so let's let's take that back to back to Chris. So we we have um, we've agreed on a sort of broad set of problems, and, and 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 unfortunately, they don't necessarily all point the same way when it comes to or clearly relate to let's say um, the, uh, 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 an independent CDC. So we get potentially more political independence, um, and I'll come back to that question. But but let's assume we have the political independence. Do you see ways in which greater independence can deal with the competence problem? And I think. We've now defined a competence problem that has to do with social and behavioral science. It has to do with political acumen, um, and it has to do, in a sense, with leadership. Um, An independent agency led by a skilled leader will behave differently than one uh, run by a a, a clod. So, how how big a a benefit are we going to get from the 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 effort of 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 changing the structure?
1: Well, I think one way to think about competence as a trade off between um, technical skills and managerial skills. Um, versus um, being, I use the term political hack before, and that's one way we lose competence is when experts are replaced by by non-experts who are favorable to the to the president or or to the politicos. And so, um, to the extent that you can have a selection process um, that that spans any particular um, uh, presidential term, I think you can start to develop um, a, a competence. So, I think our, the Federal Reserve Board is a great example of that. I mean, these are uh, high level. Uh, economists that have been appointed to the Federal reserve board and other high-level uh, executives of, of, of major uh, banking institutions that's a pretty healthy sort of ecosystem of, of competence and expertise that's in the federal Reserve and and as a result we've had a remarkably stable economy um, uh, you know for for decades so um, whether that can be replicated some even legally it's it's arguable that the federal reserve is is sui generis. it's not even clear that the Supreme Court would hold it constitutional if it was created today but at, but let me just put a thumbtack in that and say that's an example of how you can get uh, successive waves of competent leaderships, even if their political preferences waver—you know, ten degrees left or ten degrees right or center, depending on who's who's in the chair. All
0: right. Well, so Gene, uh, Chris has pointed to an, uh, an economic agency that has presided either helplessly or uh, in, in collusion with the greatest expansion of unhealthy inequality in our nation's history. Um, is is that a fair comparison to CDC? Is is sh- sh- can CDC Be like the Fed? Should it be like the Fed?
2: Well, we're like, we're like, uh, Chris and I are like the two blindfolded people feeling the elephant, feeling different parts of the Fed. I see the Fed as the Fed, FCC, FDIC, securities and exchange, all with vast political interest in the business sector, in banking and communications and social media, supporting that politically because they know it's in their enlightened long long run range self-interest to be so regulated and controlled, it gives them protection. And historically, that's why those were put in place. Okay. But some of these other Me Too commissions and so forth, even, you know, NLRB, which waxes and wanes depending upon the the union uh, ability to influence an administration, but OSHA, Consumer Product uh, Safety Commission, um, Federal Election Board, get themselves kneecapped because they don't have those vested interests with the possible exception of unions out there supporting them. So you can't get there from here without other allies built that support. There's plenty of opportunity now for public health to build support with the businesses that just got themselves. They lost, you know, trillions of dollars over the last 15 months. And I
1: think for that same reason, you know, we've actually seen some of the industry, at least the established players, uh, uh, supporting uh, efforts to keep the FDA, you know, a little bit independent, quasi-independent, at least, you know, having its own budget authority and that sort of thing. We've reached an equilibrium there where the politicians are less able to um, uh, wade into day-to-day efforts of FDA. Um, uh, in part, because I think the industry is supporting, at least the major players are the, the the ones that are trying to disrupt the pharmaceutical industry. Say, you know, it's it's the opposite. But um, but I think that's another example of how uh, industry supports can be uh, uh, support and
0: so I, I take it Gene's point goes to the fact that that whereas Chase, Manhattan Bank, and Goldman Sachs like the Fed and support the Fed, um, uh, you know General Foods and uh, R.J. Reynolds are not such big fans necessarily of CDC, um, and therefore that that you know the Federal Reserve model is kind of inapposite. No, that's funny. Go, ahead. go ahead, Chris.
1: I was going to say I think it depends on the scope. So nothing in our paper. I said just take the exact CDC we now have and and and, and layer on an independence. I mean, in fact, in the uh, in the in the New England Journal of Medicine paper with Jackie Salwa, we talk about maybe just carving out some of the informational functions so that we have uh, reliable public health information. And so, um, you know, whether uh, the tobacco industry would see that particular function threatening enough to, uh, to to prevent it from coming into existence is is one question. But once it's in existence, we get even better protection from those vested interests. So, like anything, it's a little bit of a chicken or egg, and the question is whether um, whether we're in a time after a crisis um, that that you know magical things can happen in the United States. We saw you know an entire reorganization of the of the the Homeland Security Agency after 9/11. Uh, so it's possible. Um, I don't really want to handicap what could happen through Congress now, uh, but the idea is then to make it you know, make it secure against those interests once you have it.
2: Gene, you were vigorously shaking did, your head. I, I totally disagree. If that were put in place now by a divided uh, Congress and and a president facing a mid-year election with the razor-thin margin, if not in two election cycles, certainly within three two-year election cycles, that CDC would be carved up and eaten alive by the bigger raptors in the political jungle because we don't, these these proposals occurred periodically when I lived in the CDC silo, and they have a certain, attract. they're aspirational. Oh, hell yes, we would like to be that. We'd like to grow up and be the SEC someday, okay? But in order to do that, you've got to build the political alliance and the astuteness and take NIH for as an example, okay? NIH didn't get chewed up very much over all of this. Now, they had Tony Fauci, which Chris astutely references in the article. But Tony, he didn't survive because he was a career civil servant. He survived because he was smart, he was savvy, and he was experienced. And NIH built its political base beginning in the 60s with their grants that were contingent upon the availability of continuing appropriations. And it's not the authorization that gets you anything. It's the appropriation. So that incentivized every state that had a med school, a public health school, a hospital doing research, a research organization to be able to lobby their delegation to make sure that next appropriation gives them money. They have a power base. And and I I just, I just we we in public health have got to do a better job. And I'm not beating up CDC. I know those policy, those policy analysts have been in my class. And I know they struggled to try to get through this. It's very hard. And I don't know that I could have done any better in their shoes. But we need to build out in the field of public health, get away from this arrogant condescension we're science. We know what's good for you. We're from the nanny state and make clear um, allies. And certainly there's an opportunity to do that with the business community. There's, we will never compromise with the tobacco industry. Eventually, we fought the long war and brought them to ground. They're still alive.
0: Gene, let, me, let me just ask, throw, throw out here. I feel yeah. at, at this point, a, a need to talk about marijuana, um, not necessarily to use it just at this moment. I still have more hope. But 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 to talk about it, this is a point that that uh, Jackie and Chris make in the paper, which is um, you know let's look for a solid, independent funding stream for CDC. That and and you've talked about the analogy to NIH and the fact that their that the strength of their of of, of their um uh of their, their political strength depends in part upon their their wealth and their ongoing commitment to make sure that that wealth remains. So you know Chris, when I thought when I saw the marijuana suggestion and read your chapter, I was thinking you know this is really another way to think about this is we need a public health institute. You know, a model that has popped up around the world is the is the quasi-independent or independent public health institute with dedicated funding that knows every year what its budget's going to be, no matter what it says, um, and at least depending on the consumption of marijuana or cigarettes, and is free to, to, to act and advise um, without fear of getting punished politically. Is that how important is funding in your in your respective thinking? Gene and Chris, and is that a way to move forward on independence without talking about independence?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the two uh, puppet strings that Congress and the executive has, if they want to manipulate or or direct the work of an agency, are personnel uh, and um, and money. And so we've seen historically efforts by Congress to um, cut an agency out at the knees if it's doing something that that some powerful chairman uh, of a committee dislikes. And so yeah, that's exactly right. You pulled that out. Of the paper we, we suggest that uh, if we could get to the legalization of marijuana it, federally, which is supported by broad majorities, um, uh, then that would provide a potential humongous revenue stream that we could allocate towards uh, an independent public health agency, not unlike the way the SEC is funded through uh, transaction fees on options and equity trades, or the Federal Reserve Board's funded through bank fees. Uh, the idea is to create this this independent path um, that uh, that avoids um, any uh, congressional or or uh, uh, federal uh, per, uh, presidential manipulation
2: gain money yeah money i'm i'm sorry Chris i respectfully disagree there is no such thing under our constitution as a pot of money coming through the federal government your point i think if i may summarize was
0: what one congress does another Congress can undo and so as one we,
2: president does.
0: as yeah. one president can do so as we now come to the end of our um, 20 minutes i would like to give each of you a chance to to sort of give your um, final, you know, 30 seconds on the merits uh, and or mechanisms um, of an independent uh, set of public health bodies um, at the federal level.
1: Great. Thanks, Scott. It's been great to have this chance to chat. And, you know, I think ultimately it's a matter of of, of creating an institution uh, that is both reliable, deserving of our trust and one that appears trustworthy. And so I think we do have basic principles of some federal agencies that have successfully done that, We have other examples of federal agencies that have been hamstrung by politics, even though they've tried to be made uh, independent, uh, like the FEC or NLRB in some some decades. Um, But I think this provides a pathway to uh, reduce uh, the level of political interference at a granular way, so that when, um, you know, a report comes out of the CDC, uh, we will know that we can rely on that data, just like we know uh, we can rely on uh, data coming out of the Federal Reserve Board or other agencies. So um, it's just uh, really a set of tools that we should have in our toolbox as we're thinking about institutional design. So thanks for the time and enjoy hearing your thoughts, Gene. Yeah,
2: um, I would just say I was hired by the legendary Bill Feige when he was CDC director. He is still the legend and active in the game all these 40 years later. And he taught two generations of public health people that every public health decision is a political decision. And most political decisions are public health decisions and that they affect appropriate. Creations and structure. And so, Chris, you and I are on the same page here about this is about big public health, not narrow public health that lives in a cave and doesn't go out and deal in the real world of po- political infight. We're going to get dirty. You can't, you can't help it. So the two things we need is one internal and one external. Internally, across the field of public health, from federal, from global, federal, state, local, we need to up our political game. We need to build our political skill set. We need political scientists and social scientists, and those policy people inside our discipline, uh, just like Scott and I got lawyers in the door about 20 years ago. Okay, that's the that's the inside game. And then externally, we have to be more skilled at building allies across the political spectrum. So the next time there's a funding stream. It doesn't get eaten alive by our cousins in agriculture and transportation and education. And we sit there. We're not political, and the the the, uh, uh, the money is is gone before we know it. So we need to do both. But I commend what you're doing. It is aspirational. That is a vision. If I had a magic wand, as a philosopher king, I would say let's let's do what Chris does. But before we get before we fly, we've got to learn to walk in. Right. Well, thank you both, Gene. Um, I don't, I can't
0: top that, um, and I think it's enough to say that that all of us on this call want a strong CDC, a strong FDA that do their jobs better. All of us feel more or less wounded as lawyers out there waving the flag for these agencies for so many years at the performance that ultimately ensued in COVID. And I think none of us think it's enough to just point at the ex president and say it was all. His. Um, We got a lot of house cleaning to do, and we need a toolkit for that house cleaning. So I encourage everybody to look at our policy playbook, read uh, Chris and Jackie's article, uh, follow Gene at the Network for Public Health Law, uh, and join us uh, for the next COVID policy playbook uh, legal briefing. I I thank you all for listening today. We'll be broadcasting mostly twice a week um, at noon uh, Eastern time, usually Tuesday and Thursdays. Um, Recordings are also available on the Public Health Law Watch website. And um, the eminent Nicholas Terry archives the shows at This Week in Public Health Law. The podcast can be found at www.twihl.com or at your local purveyor of podcasts. The COVID 19 law and policy briefings are produced by Faith Kalick uh, and Liz Voiles with help from Bethany Saxon. And we'll see you next time. I'd say still wear a mask. And yeah, thank you, folks. Thank you, Chris. Thank hey, you, thanks, Gene.
1: Appreciate it, Scott. Thank you.